0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. The topic of this lecture is the word of the living God in defining humanity and life. The climax of the first chapter of Genesis is the creation of human beings, men and women, in the image of God and that makes them utterly special. And for centuries, at least in the West, this biblical teaching has been the foundation of moral values, since it gives to men and women the unique dignity of being made in God's image. So, if we look back to our legislation, our institutions, our ideas of morals, our human rights, and so on. We can trace much of this back to that statement in Genesis chapter 1. And I'd like to suggest that in order to avoid the disintegration of our society today, we need to recover and re-emphasize these truths as they come under increasing attack, not only by scientists, but also by leading ethicists, building on what scientists have to say. We should notice at once that as far as the Bible is concerned, human dignity and value are directly connected with God. It is because we bear the image of God that we possess this freedom and dignity. Now, of course, when we read or claim that men and women are made in the image of God, we run immediately into an objection from psychology. Surely it's the other way round. Surely man has created God in his image. And many atheists, inspired by Sigmund Freud, who himself thought that faith in God was an illusion, claimed that they have a very simple and convincing explanation why people believe in God. It arises from their incapacity to cope with the real world and its uncertainties. Now, this idea, we find at the very heart of Richard Dawkins' best-selling book, The God Delusion. For the new atheists like him, God is a wish fulfillment, a fictional father figure projected on the sky of our imagination and created by our desire for comfort and security. On this view, heaven is an invention to cope with human fear of extinction and death, and religion is simply a psychological escape mechanism so that we don't have to face life as it really is. But there's a real problem with this view as leading German psychiatrist Manfred Lutz points out. He says that this Freudian explanation for belief in God works very well, provided only that God does not exist. However, he continues, by that very same token, if God does exist, then Freud's argument, the very same one, shows you that it is now atheism that is the comforting delusion, the flight from facing reality, a projection of the desire not to have to face God one day and give account for our lives. The Polish Nobel laureate for literature, Czesław Miłosz, whose experience of communism gave a very good reason to know, said, a true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that for our betrayals, our greed, cowardice, murders, we are not going to be judged. Thus, if God does exist, atheism can be seen as a psychological escape mechanism to avoid taking ultimate responsibility for one's old life. And you see, the upshot is that Freud gets us precisely nowhere because the key question is, is there a God or not? And Freud can give you no help there. So with that argument out of the way, we can now listen to what Genesis says in chapter 2 and 3 about the nature of human life. Now this is important because I often say to people, Let's listen, first of all, to what Genesis actually says before we jump to conclusions. And let's try and analyze some of the ideas that it's putting across. Now, the section of Genesis, the second section running from Genesis 2.4 to 4.26, is often said to be a second creation story that, contradicts the first. I do not believe it does contradict the first. In fact, it's a further account that gives us more detail and unpacks the first account. It doesn't mention the creation of the universe, the earth, the seas, etc. What it concentrates on is the creation of men and women in the image of of God, and it relates them to their environment. It's written from a different perspective, not now so much chronological as in Genesis 1, but logical, describing the human beings in relationship to their environment. Genesis 1 tells us that God created human beings, male and female, and we might Instantly think that this took just a few seconds, but it's quite clear from Genesis 2 that there's much more behind this than immediately meets the eye. For instance, Genesis 2 tells us that male and female were not created simultaneously. And therefore, what we're now about to do is to consider the extra information that Genesis. 2 gives us that adds to the picture we get from Genesis 1. Putting it another way, the image of God, the imago dei, as it's often called, needs considerable unpacking, and that's what Genesis 2 does. It fleshes it out by giving us a kind of definition of human life, Now, defining life at the physical level is virtually impossible, but if we think at the informal level of what is it that makes life, life, what are the distinctives of human life, then Genesis 2 gives us a great deal of rich information. So, let's have a look. First, we're told that human beings were made of the dust of the ground. That is, there's so much stuff they have a material base. Almost 99% of the mass of the human body is made up of six elements, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, and phosphorus. Only about 0.85% is composed of another five elements, potassium, sulfur, sodium, chlorine, and magnesium. And the question that arises is, Is that all a human being is? So much material that we can analyze chemically. Well, certainly, a human being is so much material. But a human being is more than that. And here we come to the notion of reductionism. And there's enormous philosophical pressure in our secular society today to say that human beings are nothing but. And here we come to the first nothing but. They're nothing but material. That's a very ancient view. It goes back to the atomism of Democritus and Leucippus, ancient Greek thinkers. And they claim that human beings in common with the rest of the universe are nothing but atoms of the dust of the ground. Indeed they believed that the human soul was made of atoms, finer than the other atoms, but still nothing but matter like all other atoms. And at death those atoms dispersed and nothing of the person remained. In other words, matter, dust, atoms, was the whole of reality. But if biblical theism is true, which I believe it is, not only is matter not the only reality, it's not even the prime reality. Oxford philosopher Keith Ward writes, There is at least one mind that is prior to all matter, that is not in time, and therefore is not capable of being brought into being by anything. It is the one truly self-existent reality and the cause of all physical things. And according to the New Testament, God, the ultimate reality, the creator, is spirit and not material. Now it is facile to write off the idea that God is spirit by saying that this is dualism that believes in two kinds of stuff. And then using the somewhat vague and pejorative notion of stuff to carry the dismissive argument rhetorically. God, who is spirit, is not some kind of stuff. He is ultimate reality. He is not material. And therefore, it's not surprising that if human beings are made in his image, they have more than a material dimension. And that's indicated in Genesis 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Beyond the material dimension, the dust of the earth, there's something more that comes from God, the breath of life that constitutes man a living being, where being translates the Hebrew nephesh, which is often used as an equivalent of soul or person or self. Now, whatever the precise connotations here, we must give due weight to the implications of the transcendent dimension that constitutes human beings unique among all of God's creatures, that they alone are persons created in the image of God and therefore capable of personal relationship with him. The New Testament, for instance, speaks of a human being as being composed of body, soul, and spirit. And when Jesus died, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He was not talking about his physical body. And it's common these days, even in Christian circles, to think of a dual aspect monism. In other words, there's only one kind of stuff, matter, but somehow consciousness emerges from it. I don't find this convincing for the simple reason that this is not true of God. He is spirit and not material. And so I reject the materialism that reduces the mind to the brain. Now this question of origins, are we made in the image of God or thrown up in the sea of random permutations of matter without any ultimate significance, is of major importance for our concept of our human identity. And therefore it is not surprising that these days ferocious efforts are being made in the name of secular society and science. Efforts to minimize the difference between humans and animals on the one hand and the difference between humans and machines on the other. These efforts are driven by the conviction that naturalism must, in the end, triumph over theism by its reductionist account in removing the last vestige of God from his creation. In other words, there's a drive to show that, in the end, that human beings are nothing but physics and chemistry. But for the Christian, there is another consideration— The central claim of Christianity about the Word of God is the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Actually, what that translates is the Word came to be flesh and dwelt among us. God coded himself into humanity. He became man. And there's no question that this is a central supernatural event in history, a direct action of God of unfathomable significance. Now, in light of the fact that the Incarnation demonstrates the supernatural beyond question, I find no difficulty in believing that the human race itself began indeed had to begin with a direct supernatural intervention. The very description made of the dust of the earth certainly sounds like a direct intervention of God rather than a slow, naturalistic, unguided process. Science cannot rule out direct intervention here any more than it can at the incarnation, resurrection, and ascension. What science can tell us about human beings, though, is what it can tell us about the universe, that they also had a beginning. What the Incarnation tells us, and science does not, is that human beings are unique. In what sense? Well, they are so created and constituted that God himself could become one, and the Word became flesh. If ever we wanted a confirmation of the special nature of human beings— This is a supreme reflection, in my view, that God himself became human. So Genesis says that we have a material basis, but we're more than that. We're living creatures. Are we more than that? Yes, we are. We're now told in Genesis 2 that God made the trees in the garden good to look upon and good for food. Dogs and humans can enjoy the same food and we must, of course, realize that we have many things in common, particularly with our pets, but good to look upon indicates that human beings have an aesthetic sense. They are able to respond to color and beauty and rhythm and so on and so forth. Now, some animals appear to have a limited response to color and beauty and so on, but never to the degree of human beings. You might want to compare a dog's reaction to a Rembrandt painting and our own. It is very different indeed. Our human aesthetic sense is something to glory in. God has filled the universe with beauty from the micro cosm to the macrocosm, from the snowflakes to the stars, and we have the faculty of recognizing that beauty. Is that part of life? Yes, it is. It's a very important part of human life. Now, extreme materialist reductionism would tell us that a painting is nothing but molecules of paint scattered on canvas. Some people go even further, like the Nobel Prize winning biologist Francis Crick, and he applies that thinking to human beings themselves. And he says, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. You are nothing but that vast collection of molecules. Well, if that is so, what are we going to think of human love and fear, of concepts like beauty, morality, and truth? Are they meaningless? If Crick is right, they are. And in that case, one further wonders incidentally by what means we would recognize them. It is noteworthy that even Crick could not sustain this materialistic worldview consistently in his own book, He later says that we are largely a collection of molecules. But of course not everyone is so extremely materialist in this radical sense. For many people the main thing in life is to say yes we have this wonderful aesthetic sense and let's go all out to satisfy it. This is the philosophy we call hedonism. Satisfying our aesthetic sense with all kinds of pleasure. Let me pause there for a minute. As we go through this Genesis account, we'll see something very striking, and it's this. That Genesis, far from saying less than other philosophies, actually says more. We saw it admits humans have a material base, but they're more than material. We now learn they have an aesthetic sense. It's part of life. It's part of what it means to be human. But is that everything? Well, for some people it is. If they can fill their lives with beautiful things, they are satisfied. Well, there's more than our aesthetic sense. The trees were made good for food. It wouldn't be any good if we simply had beautiful things to look at and nothing to feed ourselves. And incidentally, there is a connection between those two things. we enjoy we humans tend to enjoy food more when there's an aesthetic discipline imposed on it, when care goes into the cooking and so on, and it doesn't just all come out of a tin. We might, just as an aside, wish to see that there's a lesson in this if We can enjoy the satisfaction of our appetite for food more by imposing a discipline on it. We ought to think of our other appetites and the way in which we can destroy our satisfaction by failing to impose a discipline on them. But is there more to life than this? Well, two special trees are now mentioned, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. Presumably, they, like the trees first mentioned, are actual fruit-bearing trees and appeared to be good for food. And so, as such, they would awaken interest and desire. Their names would make us curious. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life. What do those things mean? They're certainly indicating that there's more to life than we have already seen. But the text leaves them for a moment to fill in another series of aspects of life. The humans are placed in a garden, and out of that garden there flow rivers, and four rivers are mentioned. Two of them, rivers that we know from geography, the Tigris and Euphrates, and two that we don't know. Some have suggested that the unknown ones have actually dried up because of climate changes over the past um, years. Now, we should also notice to be careful that Eden is not the garden. The garden is in Eden. But why mention it at all? Why mention that there are rivers going out of the garden? And the interesting thing is that they're not only mentioned, but we're invited to follow them. If we go down one of them, we are told that we have come to a land where there's gold, and the gold is good. And I ask myself, why is that detail given? This is a highly compressed document. Why are we told about the rivers going out of the garden? And then it occurs to me, this is a very important aspect of life. You see, when I see a railway track, as a boy, and ever since, I always ask, where's it going? Same with the river. Where is it flowing to? And Genesis invites you to follow the rivers, follow this river and explore it. What's that talking about? It's talking about human curiosity and research. And just extrapolating very simply from this picture of following the rivers, we could say that for many people, following the rivers, following the streams, following the traces, is all of life. We call it research, and it employs many, many thousands of people in our universities and our research institutions. And you know, there are some people that wouldn't bother tuppence about beautiful paintings and aesthetics and music, and wouldn't even bother much about food, if they could solve some research problem, if they could find out where the river leads. So Genesis is now telling us that research, exploration, the satisfaction of curiosity is a very real part of life. But is it all of life? No, it's not all of life. There's more to life even than that. Well, there is work, for instance, the Creator placed the first humans, the first human, in a garden that was full of promise and interest. He was free to enjoy it and explore it and the regions around it. Now there's a difference between a garden and a natural landscape, however beautiful that landscape is. A garden speaks of discipline on a specific area of the natural world. So, the idea is that God starts this off and then puts the man there to steward it, to maintain it, and that constitutes first work. Now, the Genesis text has already presented God as a workman, and the days of creation carry that idea until God rests from his work at the end of his work week. And work in the garden is presented in Genesis as a very important part of life, and so it is. Work is the norm for human beings. This is part of the created order. And I shouldn't have to say it, but the New Testament says explicitly that Christians are required to work to provide for themselves and their family. Failure to do so, according to Paul, is to be worse than a heathen. He writes, if any man will not work, neither let him eat. But please notice how careful he is. He doesn't say, if any man doesn't work, neither let him eat. It's if any man will not work. And in some of our countries, there are many young people, and they'd love to work, but they can't find a job. It's almost as if Paul, in his sensitivity to the human situation, recognized that there were come times where people would love to find work, but couldn't do it. And I can remember my own son when he was about 16, and he was having difficulty finding a job. And he came home and he said, Dad, nobody wants me. And you see that reaction fits in with Genesis, because if it is so, that work is designed to be part of human life, then not to have work means that we sense that something is missing. And so, one of the lessons of this is very clear, that we must be very sensitive and show deep sympathy with our friends and others who cannot find employment, although they would like to find it. Now, work's an important part of life. Some repressive states, notably communist states, have tried to make it all of life, and they talked about the worker's paradise, and so on. Of course, you don't have to be a communist to be a workaholic and make work the essence of life, but it isn't. So human beings are so much material stuff. They're more than that. They have an aesthetic sense. They have a desire for food. They are curious about their environment. They have work to do. Is that it? No, there's more. You see, the garden, the place of work, had a further dimension. It was going to be the arena where the human beings explored one of the highest meanings of life itself. Adam was told, the first man, that he was free to enjoy the garden and explore it. But one fruit was forbidden by God, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, why that prohibition? Was that demeaning their status as human beings? No, it's the exact opposite because this is the one ingredient that's necessary in order to demonstrate and help humans to be moral beings. These are the irreducible elements and hence this story is of fundamental importance. You see, for morality to be real... Humans must have a certain degree of freedom. There is no morality in a robot universe, nor is there any love, because love depends on the capacity to choose between alternatives. So here in this garden, there was freedom to eat all but one fruit. But for there to be real, moral choice between right and wrong, there had to be a moral boundary. So one fruit was forbidden. And God said, in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Hence, there is now in this garden, not only a physical and aesthetic and work dimension, but there's a spiritual and moral dimension. Because here is God saying, this is his word, and it's God's Word defining what morality consists in. So the first mention in the whole of the biblical story of right and wrong has to do with the Word of God. This is life at its highest because the morality was closely associated with the relationship between man and God. And death would therefore mean the breaking of that relationship. Now, we know, because we've heard this story before, that another participant needs to be introduced before the drama proceeds, and that is the woman. Now, in section 1, all creation is declared to be good, Genesis 1. We've been told that God created men and women, But we're now at the stage, taking all this apart and looking at it sequentially. Here is the man in the garden at work, enjoying all he does and sees, yet there's something missing as far as God is concerned. And God says, it is not good for man to be alone. And we're about to learn that male and female were not created either at once or in the same way. Now, instead of it once relating the creation of Eve, there appears to be a diversion in the text regarding animals. It first of all says, not good for man to be made alone. And then it says, so out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now, this appears to many people to be a contradiction, in chapter 1, animals appear before humans and hear the reverse. But there is no necessary contradiction. If you're reading the English Standard Version, you will see a note beside the word formed that says had formed. The Lord God had formed. Read this way, the text is simply reminding you that there were animals that had been formed at an earlier unspecified time. And the Lord now brought them to Adam to be named we use the pluperfect tense in english had formed to indicate this hebrew doesn't have a separate pluperfect tense so we often have to read it from the context now what is being emphasized here is not the creation of the animals but their naming and this is strongly emphasized this is of course going back to one of the fundamental activities of human beings. Naming is the most basic use of human reason. Indeed, taxonomy, which is the sophisticated word for this, is the basic intellectual discipline in all fields of knowledge. Naming things. Now, it's interesting In this book of Genesis, some bits of the universe God named. God called the light day and so on. But he named very few things. Human beings are called, the man is called to name the animals. Now, this is a fascinating topic. Because humans are unique in being capable of distinguishing a sign from the thing it signifies. And their capacity to transcend immediate bodily needs to discuss mathematics, football, and morality and truth is not a merely natural development of the capacity of animals. The very fact that we can use our minds to name things and beyond that to do science is powerful evidence that there is a creator. And just as an aside, even atheists are beginning to see that there's a problem. Prominent among them, philosopher Thomas Nagel, who says this, Evolutionary naturalism implies that we shouldn't take any of our convictions seriously, including the scientific world picture on which evolutionary naturalism itself depends. Putting this another way, Alvin Plantinga writes, If Dawkins is right that we are the product of mindless, unguided natural processes, then he has given us strong reason to doubt the reliability of human cognitive faculties and therefore inevitably to doubt the validity of any belief that they produce, including Dawkins' own science and his atheism. Now this uniquely human ability to name things and do mathematics and science is strong evidence that we are made the image of an intelligent God. Now, the way this narrative is structured is very interesting. It's not good for man to be alone. God asks Adam to name the animals, brings them to him, and the conclusion of this exercise is there is not found that is among the animals— a helper fit for Adam. Now, animals can provide company. Many people are very grateful for their pets, their dogs, and their cats, and their horses, and so on. But here's lesson number one taught to the first human, and it's utterly fascinating. He looks at all these animals and he gives them names, Presumably names that corresponded in some way, and he cannot find a solution to his aloneness among the animals. Stand back for that for for a moment. What is it saying? Well, it seems to me, ladies and gentlemen, it is saying something very, very provocative in the contemporary world, and it's this that the very first lesson Adam was taught is that he was fundamentally different from all other creatures. And that is exactly what many atheists reject. So God makes a help fit for man. And that help is not made directly out of the dust of the ground. That helper is made out of man himself. Now, a great deal of ridicule has been poured on this story, and many have written it off as a myth without any factual base. But Hebrew scholar and trained scientist John Collins warns, if we fail to read the Genesis story as some kind of history, we fail to persuade the perceptive reader because we fail to do justice to it. And you see, the description, sleep, taking a rib, closing up the flesh, sounds very like a physical operation. A making of woman, not directly out of the dust of the ground as with Adam, but from his side to be his companion. Now before we write this off as fantasy, just pause to reflect that if it is the case that God made the first human, Adam, directly and specially from the dust of the earth, and if he created, as I believe, the universe from nothing physical, and if, as I believe, he raised Jesus from the dead, all of which are special direct acts of God's supernatural power, where is the in-principle difficulty of accepting that the creation of women is special? Nor should we write off the text as sexist in the sense that man is created first and the woman is derivative. Leon Cass, a brilliant Jewish writer, points out that man's origin was lower from the dust. Woman was made from living flesh, taken close to the heart. Also, in the process, man loses something that is built into the other so that now he will need her to be complete. Now, one thing is glaringly obvious, The Genesis account here gives no support whatsoever to the widely held notion that there was no historic Adam and Eve. Now, that subject deserves a great deal more attention than I can give to it here. But sufficient to say that the New Testament assumes the historicity of Adam, tracing the genealogy of our Lord back to him. And according to Paul, Adam and his sin were as factual as the cross and resurrection— God brings the woman to the man, not apparently to name her, because man's first speech, the first human speech directly quoted in Genesis, is this, this one at last, a hint of the satisfaction of desire that had been awakened by God's use of the word alone and not good. And yet, it is speech about the woman, not to her. It does not refer to her as now at last a companion, but that she is his flesh. It is the language of possession, of cleaving. The man names the woman and explains his choice. She shall be called woman because from man she was taken. There is a connection between the two names Ish and Ish-shah. It is a word play, a note in English, man and woman. The word Isha comes first. He is still speaking about her, not to her. Indeed, one of the interesting things about this text is, in it, he never speaks to her, nor does she speak to him in this entire chapter. They both speak but to others. So, no longer earthling, adam, but ish, individual male human being. Man as male in relation to woman as female. Now these are very deep issues and they deserve much more detailed investigation. Let's see again just how important that is. First of all, man created directly of the dust of the ground. Women created out of man which is vastly different, and I find it inconceivable that that account is meant to represent God taking two existing animals and conveying his spirit upon them. But now, crucially, comes the definition of marriage, and this is repeated by the Lord in the New Testament, Matthew 19:4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Note the implication. Our Lord says that this statement in Genesis is the very word of God. The creator said. And what's that saying? It's saying that marriage is not a human institution. It was defined by God and confirmed by his Son, and therefore we are not at liberty to alter it at our human whim in performing social experimentation that redefines the basic fabric of society. The man was clearly delighted with the woman. The one flesh refers to something deeper than human sexuality, but sexuality is clearly an important part of it. They were made to complement each other at many levels, including having between them the physiological makeup necessary to generate offspring. They were told to be fruitful and multiply. We should also notice the term hold fast or cleave. This is loyalty that creates the only environment in which marriage can flourish. There are such dangers in forgetting that and destroying other people's marriages, damaging lives and those of their children by ignoring it. And indeed, in the New Testament, the idea of people... Being loyal to the Lord himself is compared to loyalty in marriage. Now, with this background, they are moral beings. They are created as companions for one another. We're now introduced to the final big issue that I'm going to look at now very briefly. And that is the entry of sin into the world. Because Genesis 3 introduces another creature, different from anything that's gone before. It's called a serpent, Nahash, presumably the name given by Adam in the preceding exercise. It is animal, and yet it can speak. It can think and talk, and yet... It must have been rejected as a suitable companion for Adam, who named it. The implication of this is that rational conversation of which this serpent was capable is not enough to remove the loneliness of man. If this is so, then the woman must realize that the serpent is not a suitable companion for her either, although she was not present at the naming of the animals by definition. And so the serpent initiates the first conversation. He asks the first question and raises the issue of truth and falsehood by casting the word of God into doubt. Cleverly insinuating the idea that God's word might be subject for our judgment. Has God really said? This is an attack, the first attack on humanity. Or perhaps it'd be better to say an attack on God through humanity. And Eve responds, and her precise words bear careful attention. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Not God said we may eat. She does not ascribe the generosity to God. But then she brings God in negatively. God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But that was not how God had put it. He had said, you shall not eat it, for the day that you eat you should surely die. That is, God forbade it and said that the consequence of eating would be disastrous, thus getting across the point that it was not to be eaten because it was forbidden by God's command, not simply because of the consequence of doing so. And she not only varies what God said, but adds to it, neither shall you touch it, magnifying God's strictness as millions have done since. And the serpent, according to the text, now subtly leverages her reason and concentrates her mind on the consequences and flatly denies God's word on them. You shall not surely die. And I find it fascinating That the very first doctrine, if you like, of Scripture to be denied is the doctrine of judgment. And it's denied in a very clever way because the serpent misrepresents God, suggesting that God was taunting human beings. He places them in this wonderful environment with these beautiful trees and luscious fruit, and then he forbids them to eat the fruit. And so the enemy insinuates that God wants to limit human freedom. He doesn't want them to rise to their full potential. He doesn't want them to become the gods they could become. And so the snake presents God's love as envy and his service as servility and moral suicide as liberation. It's very dangerous, ladies and gentlemen, to underestimate the power of such temptation. Such questioning of authority and obedience faces us all and can catch us unawares very smoothly and cleverly. The serpent makes use of the capacities God gave to the humans to make the one forbidden thing the only desirable thing. Aesthetic sense, it was good to look at. It seemed to be good for food. It would make you wise. All of those capabilities were the good gifts of God to these humans now the clever enemy is using them to force a wedge between them and God and so now the woman looks at her environment without taking God into consideration and the whole situation appeals to her desire for material aesthetic mental enrichment that for many people is tantamount to life itself Yet she was now for the first time using her God-given abilities without reference to God. And the sin that infected the human race from its start was disobedience to the Word of God, a revolt of the human spirit against the God who created it. The fall, as we call it, is what happens when humans demand autonomy and choose to disobey the Word of God. Leon Cass, the Jewish writer, said, The name that Genesis gives the principle of disobedience is knowledge of good and evil, knowledge freestanding and autonomous. That is just like a tree. The fall is what happens when man begins to think of himself as more than an image. You shall be like gods. And as soon as the first humans took The forbidden fruit, they experience not freedom but shame, unease, alienation from God, the beginning of the death of all their relationships starting with the relationship with God and ending with physical death and all the deaths in between, alienation from God, the death of aesthetics, the death of work, the death of relationships. And we don't have to comment on those because we're aware of them from every newspaper in the land. And so the man and the woman who had enjoyed the joy and friendship of God now felt that God had become their enemy and fled to hide from him. And we humans have been running away ever since. The enemy is sown in the heart. Of human beings, the widespread suspicion that God, if he exists at all, is innately hostile to us. He forbids us the enjoyment of natural pleasures. He represses us psychologically. He's keeping us from developing our full human potential. He's against knowledge. Now let me make this very clear. The tree in the garden is not the tree of knowledge. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it's a particular bit of knowledge that you don't want to have. That knowledge devastated the human beings. The garden was full of knowledge. Everything was allowed, exploration and all the rest of it. There was vast potential for knowledge in the garden. The thing that was forbidden, let me repeat, was not knowledge, but knowledge the knowledge of good and evil attained through disobedience to God. And you'll find this distortion. Christopher Hitchens sadly misrepresented this. He said God is a tyrant and a bully and he said it's useless to object that Adam seems to have been created with insatiable discontent and curiosity and then forbidden to slake it. But that's nonsense. Only one thing was forbidden. God certainly created Adam to be curious, but not discontented, and he was not forbidden from slaking his curiosity. The first humans, let me repeat, had a world of possibilities at their feet, and God encouraged them to engage in fascinating tasks of work, of naming things, and exploring the universe. This is, I repeat, not the tree of knowledge. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You will notice that it wasn't until both of them ate that their eyes were open, and they sensed that alienation from God. The snake had promised them that their eyes would open. And it was. That part was true. But they didn't become like the gods they thought they would come. They now felt that they were naked, and they felt ashamed, and they ran away, and they hid. And God said, where are you? And Adam replies, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked, God replies. Have you eaten of the tree? of which I commanded you not to eat. And then the man blamed the woman, and the woman blamed the serpent. And God judges the serpent. Now, this is quite important, actually, because there is a widespread view around the place that one of the results of sin entering into the world is that human beings became, to quote the New Testament, dead in trespasses and sins. And so they did. But the word dead is interpreted like this. They were dead like a dead horse, and a dead horse cannot respond to anything. This is not true of Adam and Eve in the garden because here they were dead in trespasses and sins by definition. God said, where are you? Well, they could respond. They weren't intellectually dead, nor were they morally dead, The man blamed his wife, and no man who blamed his wife is morally dead. The death was not physical. And we must not interpret the phrase dead and trespasses and sins by using analogies based on physical death, because that is precisely what didn't happen in the garden. They died in the day they ate of it. What do you mean by death? Well, what do you mean by life? The highest meaning in life is the relationship with God. And so death at its worst is the separation of human beings from God. It all sounds very gloomy and devastating, and we can see the awful damage that's been done as a result of sin entering the world. But now listen as we conclude to the Word of God coming into this. God judges the serpent, but the serpent is told that the woman's seed shall bruise his head. There is to be a victory, but note carefully, it is not just going to be a victory in which God triumphs. There is no question about God triumphing. We're not dualists believing in equal good and evil principles in the universe. But here is something absolutely spectacular. God has created a special creature in his own image. This creature has sinned and brought sin into the world and damage and all the rest of it. What will ultimately happen? And God makes this promise. The seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. What does that mean? It means that a human is going to triumph. And there starts the beginning of the gospel message. The seed of the woman, a human, will ultimately triumph. And we now know with hindsight, because we know so much more of the story, having the whole of the Word of God in front of us, that the seed of the woman in the highest sense is Christ, the seed who came into our world and took the weight of human sin upon himself and died on a cross and triumphed over the serpent. And therefore, in this very far off beginning of the book of Genesis, which gives us such a brilliant picture of what life is. When life begins to be destroyed by human rebellion, God's word that defines reality, God's word that created the universe, now comes in with a promise. And it's the promise that humanity will triumph. Or more accurately, a particular human will triumph. God will become human. And he will triumph. And through trusting him, as Genesis will later reveal, we can have eternal life. So it's not surprising, ladies and gentlemen, that the rest of this book concentrates on how things can be put right when they've gone wrong. How did they go wrong? By human failure to trust God. How could they be put right by humans learning to trust God. And so the rest of the book, those great stories of Abram and Isaac and Jacob, are held out for us, as the New Testament tells us, to teach us precisely what it means to trust God. And I trust that one of the results of our study is to see the centrality of the Word of God in defining human life so that we can examine our own lives and so that we can see that the central issue is loyalty to God's Word. And in a world full of pressure to move away from God's Word, we would ask that God, through his Spirit, will give us the strength to be stable and to stand for his Word and point many people to its truth as it illuminates the path of salvation.